0: Tuesday morning, the 8th of
1: August. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. With energy bills skyrocketing, the cost of energy is proving to be a significant challenge for many householders, businesses and indeed sports clubs. The government is making two and a half million euro available to clubs around the country to help them meet the bills. We'll talk about that in a moment with uh, the Minister for Sport, Thomas Byrne, a of fall td for me these two joins us now good morning to you minister and thanks indeed for joining us after what was a long weekend for most of us but a very very long weekend for people in betty's town Uh, and uh, indeed uh, we've seen such significant damage to people's homes along uh, the village estate and the eastham road what can you tell us this morning
2: well, look. I mean, just my my heart goes out to everybody who's been affected by that. I mean, people have been not just affected, but really severely affected uh, in 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 though in, in the village estate and indeed in the, in the caravan park, and in some other houses as well. Um, a small number of other houses in other areas in, 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 in Bettystown as well were affected. Um, the, there is significant support, I think, to be fair, available there from the council. There's there a liaison officer over there now, as we speak, in the village hotel in Bettystown and um, there will be welfare support as well for people to replace most people who've been affected will have to replace everything uh, in terms of beds and, and white goods and furniture and that type of thing uh, and there's, there's liaison going on in the village the hotel if anyone needs that that's where some mm. the information is for me County Council and as I understand it from the Welfare Department as well but can I also thank as well the, the, the County Council staff the fire service Red Cross volunteers local County councillors. to be fair as well have been on the ground all weekend I just want to pay tribute to all of them because it was a a massive outpouring of support and local residents to to, to help people in in severe distress at the weekend. I think they all deserve
1: a lot of credit. Mm, No doubt uh, that is uh, the case Uh, and indeed that liaison officer has been at the Village Inn Hotel since nine o'clock this morning. Uh, No doubt people uh, will be meeting with uh, the liaison officer and there is a a lot of problems, a a lot of uh, people with different problems I'm sure for that matter.
2: Oh, well, There's no doubt. I mean, there's, I mean, everybody's case is personal, everybody's case is basically disastrous that's going there, uh, and they're all different at the same time. So there's, there, the Department of, of Social Welfare is, is used to dealing with these at a national level, uh, and there will be support available for essentially emergency income support payments, replacement of white goods and furniture, etc., and then They'll also look at what further financial supports may be may be required as well mm. um and I think they'll be they'll be decent about this uh, they
1: are well they means, means tested, tested those. However, sorry they are means tested are they not
2: Well they are, but I mean yeah. people with average levels of income will qualify for assistance. I mean that's what the Department of Social Welfare is saying you don't it's not just for people who are on social welfare payments
1: mm. with savings. I mean, they're means tested. I take it a, a lot of people yeah. won't qualify, and indeed, if they have their own insurance. I, I, I would expect.
2: I would expect. I would expect the, the majority, vast majority, of people probably to qualify for assistance. And already last night, uh, to be fair to them, the Red Cross mm-hmm. on a voluntary basis and and the um, local councillors as well were sorting beds, and me county council sorting dehumidifiers as well for properties and. Things like disinfectants and all of that were being sourced as well, so there was a lot of help uh, being provided, and I've no doubt that the vast majority of people will get support from the Department of Social Welfare this morning.
1: Okay, um, do savings come into account?
2: I, I leave that to the welfare officers. Yeah, they're, okay. they're, they're getting to grips uh, with this as we okay. speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would imagine, I would imagine that. I what, mean, what, what the Department of Social Welfare is telling us is that individuals and families with average levels of income will qualify for assistance, and I, I, I have no doubt that will apply. Uh, to most
1: people down there. Mm, Okay, otherwise it's going to be a very costly affair. It'll run into many thousands of euro, I imagine, uh, given uh, the extent of the flooding. It was an awful lot of rain, there's no doubt about that. and Very high tides, uh, along with all of uh, that rain. Uh, But this was an accident waiting to happen, many would say, wasn't it?
2: Well, there's no doubt the lethal combination of rain and high tides is is not the first time we've seen this. Uh, it's happened before, Um, there were significant flood alleviation works done in that area, it's not something that's new, it's not something that people can sort of straight away say this is caused by climate change, this is something, as as you said, this has been known and uh, significant works were done Uh, and I certainly want to investigate with the OPWME County Council as to what wasn't done uh, over the last while in terms of completion of works um, projects that have Mm -hmm. been asked for that maybe haven't been delivered and in terms of um, who was responsible for cleaning out you know, rivers and gullies and that type of thing mm. to make sure the water flowed? Because this has had disastrous consequences for a significant amount of people.
1: But is it as a result of uh, the Northlands being built on a floodplain?
2: Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I'm not going. Go, I mean, th- that should be looked at definitely. But there's no doubt there is. I'm, I'm not going to specify any particular estates, but there are certainly estates then there that should never have been built and the land should never have been zoned. I mean, I, I've said that for years. And that's a fact, but that's a fact we have to live with, it. and we should live with those decisions that were made long before I would say any of the politicians in this area um and we've got to make sure that we we deal with this and we deal with people properly, we make sure that they're they're not impacted and, and do all works necessary for that
1: okay, odd to think uh that a, a disaster was created uh like this um, uh, it, it, that it could have been foreseen uh, but the decision was made to build on a, a flood plain uh, and then a flood mitigation scheme was to be put in place but that didn't happen
2: Well first of all on the flood plain yes I absolutely agree that should never have happened and you know I've in the past I've been critical of that myself from from the, my start as a politician because that's obvious should never have happened that's done unfortunately we have to live with the consequence of that hmm. It was very wrong when that happened. In terms of the works that have happened, there have been millions spent on flood defences in various in various parts of that area. Uh, when I was first elected as a TD, there was flooding in Mornington, and we got 10 million euro done there at Harry Shop in that area. There was further work done at the Northlands. Uh, there is work to be done at this place, and again, it's it's up to us now to find out why was this not done mm. uh, over the last uh, over the last while. This yeah. is a very serious question. There's no two ways about that um another meet county council and the OPW are meeting today. This should have been done, but not only should those works have been done, um, but various maintenance work should have been done I think on on on, on the waterways in that area as well to make sure that they were clear. Mm. Because what happened here is it's not just it's not just the heavy rain, but that's it's the heavy rain combined with the tide coming in, leaving the water nowhere to go. So to make sure that's
1: yeah, nearly five metres high apparently. Yeah, but I mean at the same time, uh, it, it was known there was this risk of flooding, and it was the responsibility of the OPW to carry out flood mitigation works. Those mitigation works uh, have not. Uh, been started, let alone completed, but uh, at the end of the day, people have had their houses flooded. Uh, Whose responsibility is it? I mean, as you say, uh, there is uh, assistance there and grants there, but if people have to pay for it out of uh, their savings, or if uh, they have to make insurance claims and then see their policies go up as a result, result of that. Um, it doesn't seem particularly fair that people are, are left in this mess. Uh, and apart from the cost uh, and how it's going to be paid for, uh, why did this happen? It would seem a legitimate question for the residents.
2: Well, it's an absolutely legitimate question. When you meet the residents, that's the first thing they're, they're saying. Uh, it's an absolutely legitimate question. And I don't blame them on the questions that I'll be asking as well. Uh, on their behalf and, and their right to do that and to be fair to local councillors have been raising some of these issues as well with the OPW um, I would say, though, that a lot of flood mitigation works have been done. They just they weren't done here. Uh, and they should have been done here. And people were waiting for the works uh, to be done here. And that, that is a problem. Mm. And people should not be left out of pocket. And if certainly if there are people who feel they're going to be left out of pocket, then I'll certainly be happy to meet them and address our cases with the Department of Social Welfare. But the welfare officers are really only getting going on this now in the last 20 minutes or 25 minutes. So, look, mm. I'm confident that they will deal with this in the way that the Department of Social Welfare has always dealt with us and dealt with us in a humanitarian way, in an empathetic way. I've no doubt that that will happen and they have significant leeway uh, to give help to people and people should not be, and as far as I'm concerned, won't be uh, out of pocket uh, for what has happened here. The issue of insurance, obviously, if, if insurance covers something, then insurance pays for it, not the state. But the reality is here that lots of people simply could not get insurance. Uh, because of the position uh, of their houses and this particular
1: risk. Mm. How many houses uh, are we talking about? Do we know? Do we have a, a, a total number of houses? It's about 30, I think,
2: but it, the, 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 between the mm. village estate, mm. then you've also got the caravan park next yeah. door where the caravans yeah. are up higher. They're, they're, they're not directly affected. However, there were sheds affected with maybe white goods in them or washing machines, et cetera, in them. And then there were some other houses in some other areas as well uh, that have been affected. Uh, flooded in driveways, etc. So, so this, it's a very significant number of houses. I mean, this yeah. happened before, um, and as I say, works were done to relieve it. But this, this is as bad as I've seen uh, in my time. I have
1: to say. Okay. Well. Hopefully, uh, uh, people will uh, get cleaned up uh, and dried out uh, as soon as possible. Just,
2: again, all yeah, those people yeah. I mentioned, Michael, deserve yeah. huge thanks that were on the ground all weekend. Like I mean, of course. Yeah. The rest of us can talk mm. about it, but they were on the yeah. ground all weekend, the Red right mm. Cross, uh, mm. fire, fire Service, Mead County Council and senior officials were over there as well. Local councillors on the ground were all there, and just to, to thank them, and I think the residents, despite being, and I don't blame the residents for being angry, mm. I think there was certainly a level of appreciation for the help that people were, were, were providing to them in
1: their hour of need. I'm sure a dreadful weekend and uh, a long weekend if ever there was. Uh, the liaison officer, as you say, is in the village ho- uh, in hotel, has been there since nine o- o'clock and will be there for some time uh, today if people want to meet uh, with uh, that person uh, to discuss the next steps. Uh, as I, I said at the outset, the government is moving to help uh, sports clubs uh, with the cost of, of energy. It's a, a fairly significant scheme, 2.5 million euro that is being made available overall. Tell us a little bit more of you, what plays Minister?
2: Well actually Michael, this is the latest stage in this particular scheme on sports energy support. I mean the overall allocation is 35 million actually. Um, What we've been doing is giving assistance to sports clubs since the start of the year. What we actually found was, um, we, and we've been trying to get to the bottom of this, is just trying to get the money spent because the take-up wasn't as large as maybe we had anticipated on this particular one. And there are various reasons for that, because of course a lot of sports during the middle of winter aren't operating to the same extent that they would be in the summer. So what we did was we extended the deadline uh, on the on the scheme to allow bills uh, up to May to qualify. And we allowed uh, sports clubs then to deal directly with the with their national sports bodies uh, to ensure that they would get whatever support they would need in terms of the increase in the bills over from four years ago uh, compared to now, and there are thousands of clubs that have benefited from it. But when I was first appointed, I mean, there were a number of clubs, including local clubs, onto me saying that they couldn't get support. So we reopened uh, the, the, the the winter scheme in May and uh, allowed bills uh, to go up until May as well. Uh, for to, to to basically to get refunded for the extra uh, energy costs for April and May, we allowed that to happen as well. And this is just the latest allocation of that, and it's just mm. designed it's just one of the, the many government schemes designed to help with the cost of living, which of course is, is affecting families, business, but also sports bodies as well. Okay. Uh, and we just want to recognise that. Uh,
1: and 23.5 million has already been made available to clubs, but as you say, there's been a, a low take up on the grants. Uh, were you surprised by that, given the huge bills that everybody is very aware of?
2: Well, when I say low take-up, I mean, look, there was 35 million allocated, and we've got rid of, you know, over over 20 million of that now. Um, but, yeah, it, it is one of the questions that we're asking ourselves after as a point as to why uh, some of this funding wasn't taken up. And we, what we did was we reopened the scheme mm. uh, and we allowed bills... Uh, to be registered for April and May. Uh, and there are various reasons for it. And one of them is that clubs simply were operating uh, during uh, the the winter. The other issue, I'd say, is that some clubs have had difficulties within their national governing bodies. I'd urge them to contact them again, now that they, they know the NGBs have this money, uh, with the electricity uh, bills, uh, to try to, to draw this down. I've uh, met a number of clubs who are in that position. What we've done is we've allocated the money to them, through the national governing bodies, uh, and the clubs can then uh, generate the money uh, through mm. through their particular schemes. But they should be benefiting from it because uh, the funding is there for that and it's okay. very, very important.
1: And what, what was it, too much funding? Uh, because, as you say, there was £35 million, and a half million has been paid out. You're making another £2.5 uh, available. available. Uh, there's £9 million missing, is there?
2: Well, we'd never say there's too much funding. I've never heard anyone complain that the government was giving too much money away. But there's, there, there are certainly this funding is available. And is should be taken up, and I definitely any clubs that are in, that are in difficulty with energy bills um, that they, they, they can't pay should go to the national governing body for seeking to see can they get support from this. That, that's who administered this. Mm. Um, but I, th- I again, I think it was through the winter, not just that they couldn't play, but also maybe committees weren't meeting, etc. Um, that that may have been an issue. But clubs, and certainly, or any clubs that weren't aware of this particular scheme please contact your national governing bodies, what
1: I'd say. OK, and, and of course, clubs uh, are very good at fundraising and probably met a, a lot of their bills anyway. Uh, could that money have been used to help households given the fact that there's 400,000 households in arrears?
2: Well, there's a, you know, whatever money we gave to to clubs, there was a massive amount more given to, to households. And I think there has been significant action. There was a 1.2 cost of um, cost-of-living package uh, announced in February, I mean, for example, that to have various people, there was VAT reductions on bills, we had business as well. Um, the VAT reduction extends to the 31st of October this year. That, that VAT reduction alone costs mm. £115 million. So, what we're giving to households and to businesses significantly, I mean, ma- many multiples greater, uh, and there has been significant government support uh, from... Uh, for energy bills over the last while and I have no doubt that that will continue uh, into the winter Mm. I mean there has been support for bills that has eased off during the summer Um, but if the bills continue to be high there is no doubt the government will step in Mm. and the government has brought in the windfall gains legislation Uh, that takes a solidarity um, contribution, as they call it, on windfall gains, uh, gains back in 22 and 23 uh, from basically gas production uh, and oil refining. Uh, they, have to, they have to pay a sort of a retrospective levy. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Mm. And th- that is helping the government to give support to people who are in
1: difficulty with energy bills. Okay, but there's something wrong, isn't there, when there's 400,000 households in arrears? I mean, it is staggering. It's appalling, really, isn't it, Minister? it's
2: absolutely appalling it's it's terrible that the prices have gone up like this we all know the reasons for them uh we've worked to give support to people um nobody will be cut off um from their utility bills if they're if they're engaging with their suppliers that's 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 the, that's the reality uh if people work with them they will not be cut off uh we have not had that situation uh, as part of this crisis and we want to help people MABS is available for people if they want support in terms of their energy bills uh, in terms of working with their suppliers and, and, and various other problems that they might have. Mm. Uh, but, in, but in addition, uh, we are coming up now to a budget and the government will be you know, is keenly aware of the difficulties that people are facing. We've shown that we're keenly aware of it over the last year and a half in terms of supports uh, that people have received from government to help them with the bills. There are really targeted supports and um, there are supports across the board but there are also supports for the most vulnerable and, and needy in society. Uh, and I've no doubt that in terms of the budget, uh, there will be further support uh, in relation to energy bills.
3: It's really, really important at the
1: moment and I accept that. Alright Minister, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme okay. uh, this morning. Uh, Thomas Byrne is uh, the Minister for Sport and uh, Fianna TD for Mid-East. Michael,
3: Michael Reid on LMFM.
1: Brexit, Covid, the war in Ukraine, it's one crisis after uh, another. But we go into uh, the next budget in a uh, different uh, f- situation and it's a- an opportunity according to Chambers Ireland uh, for the government uh, to invest in infrastructural deficits Uh, let's hear a little bit more about what Chambers Ireland is saying in its pre-budget submission Shane Connolly is Director of Policy and Communications and a very good morning to you Shane and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today Uh, you're suggesting to the government that they create a special purpose fund to address infrastructural deficits and we're talking about everything from energy to water transport, health and housing for that matter
4: Good morning, Michael. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for inviting me on as well. Yeah, we, we, so our, our principal call for government this year now is to move beyond incrementalism. There's a temptation in lots law other government policy to make a little change and see what the effect is. But suppose our feeling is that for many of the problems that we're facing, Little changes; they're just not big enough to keep pace with the, the way in which our country is changing. So, even simple things like we we saw with the census earlier on this year, you know, our population is growing far faster than anyone anticipated. So, e- even if we were tracking our targets that we wanted to hit five, six, seven years ago, uh, we would be behind. Um, and unfortunately, because of all those crises, because of Ukraine, because of COVID. We have fallen short of where we wanted to be, so now we're well behind where we want. I mean, we want the government to make bold decisions over the next year to ensure that we can actually start delivering on our longer-term targets.
1: Right. And to breach its spending rules, is it? Uh,
4: well, the spending rules are... are, are, are <sighs> look, we're not looking for them to spend the money this year. That's the whole purpose of the, invest- the, 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 the uh, infrastructure fund. Mm. You know, I mean, there, there, is, there is inflation in... in in the economy. Um, there's a big constraint in the number of workers that we can apply to, la- particularly for large construction projects. So you know, there's a, a short-run uh, need to ensure that there's more housing available. So like projects that we are advocating, for, so of course, things like the, uh, the, the the modern methods of construction. We're going to quick build uh, prefabrication houses which are going up at the moment. That's an industry which we need to develop in Ireland. It's one that's already large across most of europe but unfortunately because of you know traditional reasons you know we haven't sort of taken that path ourselves and those kind of things will help us expand our housing supply which will allow us to expand the working supply which will allow us to deliver those projects so what we're calling for is an infrastructure uh, fund which will ensure that we can kind of save that money and make sure that they gets applied to where we need to because of course the difference to you know for, for governments looking mm. forward as opposed to those that were five six years ago is that it's much more costly to borrow money in order to invest in those projects we need the projects as a massive infrastructural deficit right across the country and there's huge plans your listeners know well and i I heard I heard airgrad, airgrad sponsoring your program like mm-hmm. from that is also there's the railway plans so the opening up of the commuter line to Navan. there's the start plus upgrades all these things are things that we need to do to these to get delivered and that happens them to be funded so we're calling on them to ensure that this money is available for us when we want it um because if, if government is you know if I was looking this morning at the the, the debt profile of the country and we will have to uh, either either pay off which is unlikely or re borrow one hundred and fifty billion over the next ten years at the same time as we're trying to roll out our one hundred and sixty five billion euro um national development
1: plan mm, Yeah, uh, and an
4: awful lot of spending that has to come down the way
1: there's well, an awful lot of money available as well demand. of course uh, I mean it's it's a great dil- great and, dilemma uh, for the government to have what do we do with the 65 billion euro over the next three years
4: well you know I, like that money is running out so that's why it needs to be set aside I mean the fact is that the vast majority of the excess funding is coming in from three companies and at least one of them won't be giving quite as much again in the future so we're we're in a situation where like there the, there is there is there is a pot there is a kitty there. We have to make sure that we, we spend it appropriately in a place where it's most effective.
1: Mm. Uh, and um, obviously, uh, there's a lot of concern about spending that money while we have it uh, and how that would feed I- into inflation. Uh, and, of course, uh, the question of who's going to do the work. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, the shortage of construction workers uh, and the great need for all of this infrastructure. And it's a difficult issue for the government to balance, isn't it? Well, it is a
4: difficult. Decision for whomever is in charge, because all we want to do is take a long-term view. And we're speaking to all parties. You know, would we say that? Because of course, you know, there will be a general election sometime in the next eighteen months. You know, possibly within the next year.
1: Okay. Therefore,
4: uh, you know, there the, the will be lar- lar- long, long-term decisions which are going to be shaped by this year's budget. Mm,
1: and of course, uh, you don't want uh, power cuts, uh, whether that's uh, one of uh, the areas where we invest in upgrading uh, the electricity supply or we invest but in transport uh, and have the train going to... Important. Of course it is yeah and the train the train going to navan uh, these are, these would all make it possible or um less difficult for you to do business uh, but you also talk uh, about staff and the challenges of recruiting and retaining staff uh, and that that is lowering our competitiveness as a, a country we've uh, more than full employment now at this stage don't we uh, it's regarded that way at it least is. and that anybody who wants to work can work and is working in this country
4: pretty much that is the case i mean the the way the way the way we measure full employment is, you know, if, if unemployment goes down to a level that you start getting kind of spikes in increases in um, labour costs, that, that's when you know you've hit full employment. So, I mean, I, I think I think everyone can accept that it is getting more expensive to hire labour in, in Ireland at this point. And, and, and yes, we are at full employment and we do need to bring in new people, to help fill in those gaps. And that's almost impossible in many sectors because, you know, it, on, on the one hand, if you're, if you're going down a pathway of, Bringing in people who need work permits, you, you can go through a very long and lengthy process of trying to bring someone on board, a highly skilled individual, and then they end up coming to Ireland if they make it here and find a home, and could have you know a two-three hour commute each day, which is not the kind of thing that people are would be willing to contest it. And then if you're somebody who's you know employing people from abroad. At the minimum wage, you know, they, they also have incredible housing difficulties. So Ireland is becoming an increasingly unattractive place. I think that the, the, the housing difficulties are, you know, they're causing a great reputational cost to us. It's something we need to get delivered on quickly.
1: And the cost of doing business uh, will undoubtedly uh, increase significantly if uh, the minimum wage is increased in line with uh, the recommendations from uh, the Low-Pay Commission. Uh, We're talking to you today uh, at a a time that the ESRI is publishing data on people who are on low pay or minimum pay and uh, who don't have the type of job security uh, that you're talking about. Uh, Would Chambers Ireland uh, support uh, the increase in the minimum wage?
4: Um, look, that's that's a nuanced one because, of course, you know, a, a huge number of our members would be in the services area, and and typically services won't actually pay an lot of it. Like the areas which are which are very focused in on 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 the lower pay, the minimum wage, are typically retail, they are um, uh, hospitality, and tourism, and tourism is having its own other, its own difficulties in in other areas. At the moment, we all know that how difficult it has been for people to, to retain staff within the hospitality sector over the last few years and also to kind of bring in new people and help them get trained up. So we see those as being big issues, but the actual real difficulty is finding the staff to begin with, because there's very few people who can get away with actually paying minimum wage.
1: But obviously, some are, and they're losing staff, uh, and uh, there's a huge turnover of staff in in the sectors that you've mentioned. There isn't there in hospitality, uh, in in retail, uh, and so on. And the reason is that people can move on to another job.
4: Yeah, I mean, they're often moving on to people within people within the same sector that are paying significantly more. You know, uh, like the, this, is, this is a conversation which came up a lot during COVID, you know, in reference to the, the PUP. But if, mm. if you look at like what you know, employers are willing to pay. There is a market out there for, for, um, for for employees, and as it stands, you know, there are many people who are prepared to pay. You know, I mean, I, I don't. know The German mm. distributors, the, 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 the German markets, like they're willing to pay two, three euros more than standard minimum That's wage.
1: True. Yeah, and you're particularly. I also
4: have pension schemes in place. Uh,
1: and like you're particularly. There's, there's you're particularly worried about uh, housing, uh, and uh, if you can get skilled, qualified staff to come to this country because there's nowhere for them to live.
4: That has been an issue for longer than I've been involved in Cambridge, Ireland, is over five years now. And that has been a critical problem, and and, and also it, it, it's hard for kind of retaining staff that you have because, of course, if somebody's living in you know insecure rental accommodation, they're you know often having to move every year, sometimes more frequently than that. You know, whenever they do move, there's a, a rent increase that goes up, and therefore they come back looking for increased wages to commensurate uh, with that increase of of housing costs. So you know, in, in many cases, you know, they like employers are, you know, very strongly uh, challenged by this the, the, the cost of housing, and it happens all across the country. Where eventually, after you know two three years of experience, somebody gets skilled up. We've been investing in them, and then they discover that they can get a job. With, you know in Denmark you know in Holland wherever and um and and that comes with you know an actual secure home
1: Okay. We have to leave it there for the moment, Shane. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Shane Connelly is uh, the Director of Policy and Communications with Chambers Ireland.
3: Michael Reid on LMFM. The
1: Patient Advocacy Service is commissioned and funded by the National Patient Safety Office in uh, the Department of Health although the service is independent from the HSE. In the course of uh, the last year, it's seen a huge increase in the demand for its Services. Its annual report shows uh, that there was a service provided. Uh, to 1,859 people last year. That covered over 6,000 separate complaint issues and that was an increase of 54% on the previous year. Georgina Cruz is uh, the National Manager for the Patient Advocacy Service. She joins us now. and A very good morning to you, Georgina, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us a, a little bit about the type of work that you do and the reasons that so many people would be making contact with you?
5: Um, hi Michael, it's nice to speak to you. Um, the type of work we do, as you said, uh, we're a patient advocacy service and actually what we provide is free, independent and confidential information and support to people who are looking to make a formal complaint through relevant complaints processes in relation to any care that they've received or experienced and at the moment our remit is in and around public acute hospitals or all nursing homes. We also support people in the aftermath of patient safety incidents.
1: Okay, Uh, and most of the people who come to you for assistance uh, are are relatively uh, simple uh, in terms of uh, the complaint. Their complaints are relatively simple to deal with uh, and dealt with quite quickly, is that right?
5: Yeah, a lot. anybody who rings our service basically gets the service. So like that, we normally tease it out with people, and if we're not the relevant service, we'll refer or signpost to other relevant services. We do encourage people to try and resolve their issues on the front line, so at the informal complaint stage, you know, but um, if they're not happy with... The answers that they get at that stage, you know, we can take them through the formal stage of the complaints process, you know, and that can involve giving people information, advice, you know, giving them the long-arm support. And if they need that full support, we do provide that one-to-one advocacy, Mm. you know, where we will work with a person, some of the complaints and the complaint system itself can be a bit complicated Um, so it is empowering people to understand that and then help them through if it's with the HSC it's the your services say complaints process and then within nursing homes it can be the local uh, complaints process you know so we will advise them access and helping them to access their information understand what options they have look at what outcomes they want really Mm. you know Um, and we do assist them in Preparing their documentation and getting a good structure on their complaint, which sometimes can really support the the answers they receive. You yeah. know, um, and then we will attend meetings with them if they need that, if the hospitals or the nursing homes offer those meetings.
1: OK, we and you've, you've, only, you've only recently moved into nursing home care. Uh, I think uh, where perhaps visiting hasn't always been uh, available. That's one of... Uh, the top five complaints uh, as you say that you've received anxieties acknowledged not addressed visiting unavailable, uh, question acknowledged but not responded to staff didn't, didn't communicate the care plan to the patient uh, and staff speaking in a condescending manner uh, so when people have felt uh, aggrieved by such experiences they've come to you uh, and you've tried to, to resolve those issues uh, visiting had been a, a problem in nursing homes I, I suppose for a lot of families. Uh, does that continue uh, to be uh, the issue um, that, uh, that, is it in nursing homes uh, where you're hearing complaints about visiting?
5: Um, the, the issues regarding visiting kind of were across all the service providers that have had a bigger impact, obviously, within COVID-19 through, the, I suppose, the, the stronger parts of the pandemic. Um it's still there, still hasn't gone away COVID, so it still does have an impact um on people and if, if there is COVID in around the area there can be a restriction on visiting um even in like people in in hospitals or nursing homes or even attending outpatients. Um, you know, so that that's we're definitely still seeing the fallout or the impact that COVID nineteen um had mm. but to a lesser extent, I suppose. But um Within the nursing homes, um, the visiting, it can be impacted by, depending on what's going on
1: Uh, within the
5: nursing home and if there's infection control um, protocols in place, you know, so um, it is really just if people contact us, we can advise them about, you know, what they can ask and what, you know, if they need to get in um, Mm. to see people and if there are issues there, we can certainly support them.
1: Okay, and uh, you give us uh, some case studies in your report. Uh, One of a a woman named Clodagh uh, who was uh, not happy with the service uh, she received uh, from a a hospital uh, when uh, she was receiving maternity care. Tell us a a little bit about Clodagh's story, if you would, please, Georgina.
5: Okay. Um, We do get uh, a lot of I suppose cases that can have a high impact on somebody and it can have a traumatising impact on somebody and Clodagh like that had given birth in the maternity hospital and had been discharged but actually was experiencing some pain so she had contacted um, the hospital and that and she felt that she was being ignored so um, she did go to A&E and e Like that when she went in, she was left for quite a while before being examined. She was then, you know, I suppose, told to go home. She refused to leave. Um, And then she was referred to a general hospital because the service that she needed, which was a CT scan, wasn't available in the maternity hospital. And in the end, she was admitted back into the maternity hospital for several days. So I suppose Claude's issue there was in and around... um, You know, she had to wait a long time in A&E. She felt there was poor communication there. She felt she was given the wrong um, medication. Um, So like that, she really felt that she wasn't listened to. So I suppose she contacted our service. Mm. She spoke with one of our uh, highly trained advocates here. They listened to the story, and that can be the big thing for somebody Um, you know, somebody actually listening to their story for the first time. They were provided with information around the complaints process. And like that, they were supported. They wanted to see their medical files, were supported to get that. Looked in our service here, researched hospital policies that were relevant to her experience, because like that, there are policies in place. And then... We helped her to write that letter of complaint and as it involved two hospitals it went in this case it actually went to two hospitals mm. and like that we supported Clodagh to outline and get to the I suppose the heart of the issues mm-hmm. for her.
1: And the and general then like hospital offered to meet with
5: to her. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and mm. that and that is a big mm. thing, you know, that the hospitals, you know, do in a cases offer for that meeting. It is important that the right staff are at that meeting, yeah. so... And she said senior staff questions. were there,
1: yeah, and she said she felt listened to as yeah. well. Yeah,
5: yeah, and that is the big thing, and that there's learning mm. from that, yeah. you yeah. know, and there's recommendations. So the outcome for that, I suppose, for Cloda was she felt listened to, she felt that mm. there was recommendations, and really she felt that other people may not have to go through this experience
1: okay. because
5: she has brought that complaint through.
1: And I, I know, think I mean, when we have a complaint like that the main thing we want is to feel that we got a, a fair hearing and that uh, yes. we were listened to and not dismissed out of hand and that's uh, what well, you can help that's people crazy. with. Uh, I'm sure there's an awful lot of people who say, where do you start with this sort of thing? But that's the type of service uh, that uh, you offer uh, and you can be contacted uh, through your website or indeed uh, there's a national phone line uh, that we can read out in a moment as well Georgina.
5: Yes there is, yeah and we're we're here Monday to Friday available from 10 to 4 and even through lunchtime and people can email us as well Um, and as I say everybody who rings our service gets the service so if we're not the most appropriate service we will even give people information and signpost them or refer them on to the more appropriate thing. Um, I suppose our service is all really about keeping the pen set with the person at the centre there and improving that patient experience for for everybody, um, be it in acute hospitals or nursing
1: homes. Very good. Georgina, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Georgina Cruz is the National Manager with uh, the Patient Advocacy Service and uh, the national phone line is 0818 293 003. That's uh, available from their website as well, 0818 293 003.
3: Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM.
1: LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Joe in Drogheda texting about Helen McEntee and indeed a poll from uh, the Sunday Independent and why. Is Helen McEntee minister for justice? Uh, when she's not I- in touch with crime, Joe says, uh, "Just look at how many people feel they've been failed by her." Uh, thanks, uh, Joe, for that. Uh, that was a- an interesting poll. I'm sure the minister uh, was particularly interested in herself. Uh, we had hoped to speak to Helen McEntee on the program last week. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, get a- an opportunity to speak to the minister. I'm sure she'd want. To to respond to those poll findings 51% of people not satisfied with Helen McEntee and how she's performing as the Minister for Justice Uh, Just 29% say they are satisfied and 20% not sure. A very bad poll, I think, in anybody's book uh, and one, I'm sure, which will give the Minister and indeed her colleagues some pause for thought that was carried in the Sunday Independent, Uh, as I say. Now, it's been an interesting weekend, uh, an interesting couple of weeks in the United States uh, for that matter with... The former president, Donald Trump, uh, in front of a court charged with four criminal offences. Will he end up in jail? Um, Will he pardon himself if he is in jail? Or will he go to the Oval Office or will it all just blow away? Uh, and uh, Joe Biden uh, will win a second term well that certainly won't be Donald Trump's uh, ambition in all of this Uh, but of course he has all of these cases against him which uh, he's been arguing really has been a persecution of him for political reasons.
6: From the beginning of our movement it's really been a true force in American politics that's dared to stand up. It's an incredible thing we dared to stand up to the Corrupt political establishment, that hasn't happened. That's why we have such difficulty because they just can't stand us. But they're getting smaller and smaller. They're getting weaker and weaker, and we have to go on and we have to win some battles. And I think you're seeing that we're winning a lot. We're going to have a tremendous election. The poll numbers are the highest we've ever had. And people are very upset out there, angry, upset that they don't like what's happening to our country because our country is going to hell, going to hell we said no to open borders no to globalist trade deals no to endless wars and no to the godless values of the communist left that's what they are they skipped socialism remember i used to say this will not be a socialist country and i was right they skipped that station we always put america first in response our enemies unleashed an army of rabid left-wing lawyers corrupts and really corrupt Marxist prosecutors, these are dishonest people, bad people, deranged government agents and rogue intelligence officers to try and stop our movement. Remember the 51 intelligence officials that lied about the laptop? They said, Oh, the laptop, Russia disinformation. No, they all lied. 51 of them lied. And it would have made a difference of about 11 points in the election, according to the pollsters. They lied.
1: All right. uh, many people would uh, feel uh, that the charges against Donald Trump must be very damaging for uh, his bid to become uh, the next president of uh, the United States of America. But Donald Trump would seem to have the view that there's no such thing as bad publicity.
6: As an example, every one of these many fake charges filed against me by the... The corrupt Biden DOJ could have been filed two and a half years ago. They didn't want to do it two and a half years ago. They wanted to wait and they did wait. They waited right to the middle of an election and they waited until I became the dominant force in the polls because we're dominating everybody, including Biden in the polls. And then they filed them all, every one of them, all at essentially one time, including local DAs and AGs and even other cases, right in the middle of the campaign, where we're leading by so much, and it's not going to make any impact because every time they file an indictment, we go way up in the polls. We need one more indictment to close out this election. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. Nobody has even a chance. We've already defeated the Republicans. They're at two and three and one. You know, they all want me to go, okay, onto the debate stage. And I say, well, if we're at 71 and they're at zero, one, two, three, some of them are at four or five, I don't know. This doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't really I love to debate, but, you know, sometimes you don't want to be a fool. You want a smart president. You don't want a stupid president.
1: All right. Well, Donald Trump would claim he was not a stupid president. Uh, and he would a lot to claim. This is his uh, speech uh, from Saturday in Alabama after uh, that ar- arraignment last week. And, of course, he's talking about all of his rivals and he's talking about, Um, uh, the prosecution uh, and uh, indeed uh, the civil servants uh, who are part of the case against him, as well as political rivals, saying that they're all political rivals, they're all liars, they're all communists. Uh, There was an old song that used to say the only good commie is the one that's dead, and uh, it would seem that Donald Trump would sign up to that and believe that calling people like Joe Biden communists uh, will be good for him politically. He believes that Biden lost the election. He believes that all of the things and the cases and the charges that are coming uh, against Donald Trump are with the single purpose of persecuting Donald Trump, and any questions if any of these charges that are being laid against him are even legal? The fact is that it's not fair, and it's
6: probably not legal what they're doing. They want to interfere in my campaign. They want to interfere in the elections. A commonly used tactic in third world countries. That's where this tactic comes, third world, fourth world, fifth world countries. And they're taking it to a level that our country has never seen. The fake charges put forth in their sham indictment are an outrageous criminalization of political speech disorders. You make a statement, oh, we have to indict him because he said we were dishonest. Let's indict him. They're trying to make it illegal to question the results of a bad election. It was a very bad election. Everybody knows that. But only a party that cheats in elections would try to make it illegal. Because if you have nothing to hide, why would you do that? And why would you be afraid to have those results come out? If you can't challenge a rigged election or if you don't have borders, then in actuality, you really don't have a country. You don't have borders. Millions and millions of people are pouring through our borders like an open wound, like a sieve. We're not the ones trying to undermine American democracy. We are the ones fighting to save our democracy. Mm. Fighting to save our democracy. Mm,
1: Against those communists. As I I say, he's referring uh, to the Biden administration as communists and liars and cheats and all of that sort of stuff. He he talked about corrupt and deranged officials in uh, the Department of Justice and how a group of lunatics are trying to block his bid to become uh, the next president of the United States. And then there's the question... What of Donald Trump's civil rights? The only civil rights that have been violated in this matter are my
6: civil rights and those of the countless people that Biden and the communists have been persecuting. And they are communists and they're Marxists and they're they're people that don't get it. They get it, you know, they're vicious and they're smart. But we're smarter and we're tougher than they are. And we're going to take it back. And we have no choice because otherwise we're not going to have a country alive. The reason this is happening is simple. Joe Biden is the most incompetent and at the same time most corrupt president in the history of the United States. The Biden crime family was taking in money from China, Ukraine, Russia, and so many other countries. And now every time more Biden corruption is exposed, his henchmen indict me because they want to knock out the bad publicity. You ever see whenever they have something big happening, they put another indictment or a special indictment. It's called a cover up. And what they do is illegal and horrible. Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists and fascists indict me, I consider it a truly great badge of honor. Because I'm being indicted for you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Lee Greenwood. Never forget our enemies want to stop us because we are the ones and the only ones that are able to stop them. They want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. It's very simple. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. In the end, they're not after me, they're after you, and I just happen to be standing in their way, and I will never leave. I will never let them do that. And I promise you this if you put me back in the White House, their reign will be over, and America will be a free nation once again. We're not a free nation. We don't have a free press. We have a corrupt press. They're corrupt. When I came out with a term many years ago, fake news now, I mean, honestly, it's just not a strong enough term. It's been a brilliant term, but it's not a strong enough. These are corrupt people. They don't want to even report. I mean, you have Biden got $10.2 million. You don't even read it in a newspaper. You don't see it on the news. They don't want to talk about it. These people are corrupt.
1: Uh indeed Uh, a corrupt press in the united states of america the home of democracy and free speech uh, where donald trump has been talking uh, a lot very proud of himself obviously. I'm not sure if he's more proud of having invented the term fake news as he said there or uh, of the fact that he's been indicted so many times. Seems delighted at that and all of it feeding into his election campaign. He would say it's a wild and weird world. A bit like visiting the twilight zone there into the politics of America staying with the politics uh, of Ireland uh, and back to that Sunday independent uh, poll with 51% of people surveyed not happy with how Helen McEntee is uh, performing as Minister for Justice. Tommy in County Mead says it's all well and good reading out the results of a national poll like that has nothing to do with what's happening on the ground. It would be a completely different result if the survey had taken into account people from County Meath. Only in County Meath, a hundred percent of people would back Helen McEntee, a fine, hard-working minister for our county, uh, and we should be thankful that we have such a good minister. Thank you, indeed, Tommy. Uh, and if you'd like to make comment on the program, let me remind you how you can do that. You can ring us oh four one nine eight three two thousand is our telephone number. That's oh four one nine eight three two thousand. Text or WhatsApp oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. That's oh eight one 658 if you want to send us a text, an SMS or a WhatsApp for that matter today and you can email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, michael Reid on
3: Lmfm. LMFM
1: The time it takes for an ambulance to respond to an emergency call is worrying and dangerous in County Louth. This is according to local Sinn Féin TD Rory Omoraku uh, who's responding to figures uh, given to the Sinn Féin health spokesperson David Cunanan from the National Ambulance Service uh, which uh, looks at turnaround times at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda Omurikou says that these turnaround times are putting patients in County Louth at risk and we're joined by Sinn Féin's Rory Omurikou now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Tell us a, a little bit more about these turnaround times because a quarter of ambulances or 25% of of ambulance, uh, spend less than 30 minutes at the hospital?
7: Yeah, well, look, if we look, I I, I suppose in April, let's say the turnaround for those that were there for less than 30 minutes, which is what you want to be seeing, you want to see this number a a hell of a lot higher than others, and that's accepting that there will always be, you know, particular issues that need to be dealt with. That was 25%. Those that took between 30 minutes and 60 minutes, at that stage, 61%. And then the ones that are, I suppose, frightening are the 14% over 60 minutes, right? In May, that got worse, and uh, you know, in the sense of 18% of ambulances were less than 30 minutes, 55% and um, between 30 and 60 minutes, and then 26% over an hour, right? The June figures aren't particularly different than the April figure so slightly, you know, rectified but you're still talking about 17% um, that are greater than uh, 60 minutes. And and look we've all spoken with those that work uh, as paramedics and and work in the ambulance service and they talk about the severe pressure they're under, the difficulties there are sometimes with rota systems and trying to to fill gaps And, and I suppose the only way that I see that this actually gets dealt with is when we actually address the issue and that's the idea that David Cullenan has put forward in relation to it's to publish and fund for Stephen Donnelly, for the government to do it, a multi-annual workforce plan and again within that we are going to have to look at a serious increase possibly you know doubling the number of paramedics and it also means looking at the whole issue in relation to retention and then increased uh, training. Look we're dealing with people that are under absolute severe pressure. As I say, unfortunately, some of the issues I'm dealing with today are no different than what we dealt with last week, which is about the fact that people have too big a workload, too much work in front of them. And my fear is that this will impact in relation to patient care and other particular issues.
1: Right. Why would an ambulance be at the hospital for more than an hour? 14% of uh, the ambulances who brought patients to the Lurds were there for more than 60 minutes in April. That increased to 17% in June. And as you say, 26% of ambulances in May outside of the hospital for more than an hour. What is the delay?
7: well, here I'll be doing a follow-up, uh, particularly with the RCSI hospital group, which I would do from time to time anyway in relation to this, because sometimes we have multiple issues, while there are particular issues in relation to the fact that we don't have a sufficient amount of... You know, we don't have fit for purpose ambulance service because we have too many people under severe pressure because we don't have the numbers. And I've already mentioned what's needed in relation to uh, training, etc. But we also know that and hospitals have been addressing some of this and obviously some better than others in relation to uh, there have been instances of time when obviously there wasn't a bed to bring someone to you know what I mean? Sure, we knew that's when we had the huge backlog at certain times in relation to uh, in relation to ambulances. So look, I, I'm doing a follow-up in, in relation to this. The, the only thing that I saw in relation to this is something that needs to be addressed. If it's not addressed, we could be dealing with far worse issues in, in, in into the future. And I'm, and I'm deeply, deeply worried. And it's no different, as I say, than what paramedics have been saying for an incredible amount of time. You know what I mean? That just this system, that they're under their pressure, the system itself is under severe pressure, and sometimes it's down to the commitment of some of these workers. How they, you know, they are. Let's say the bailing twine that keeps the engine running. You know what I mean? And we wouldn't have the service we have if it wasn't for people going above and beyond. But there's only so much going above and beyond you can do before eventually something breaks. You know, and that's my yeah. worry, Michael.
1: Okay, uh, and we're talking about uh, one of uh, the better performing emergency departments yes. in, in the country. Uh, so. Uh, It's obviously down to capacity and and, uh, ability uh, to admit patients uh, in one of the better performing emergency departments. Uh, It would seem so worrying that so many ambulances can't get away from the hospital because of, of the delay in admitting people and making room for the patients arriving in the ambulances.
7: Exactly. And look, I spoke to the RCSI hospital group who are using some of the, at times, the best practice in relation to even the freeing up of beds. We all know the issue there are in the sense that we don't have enough people working in home care, that we can't necessarily get home care packages that allow people to be released uh, from hospital um, safely and securely, you know, back to their families. Um, And I know in certain hospitals, the RCSI hospital group has actually gone and introduced its own home care, so it could actually um, get people, you know, that they would be able to be safely um, let out of hospital and then you would create space for obviously the need for the next people to come in. But look, uh, we're dealing constantly from what is, uh, we we have too many gaps across our health service. Look, we've all spoken about this before. And the problem is that if these figures get any way worse, I would be very very worried in relation to what ha- what's going to happen so uh, I'll be doubling up uh, obviously I've spoken to David Cullinan in relation to this and, and my follow up will will be both with the ambulance service and also with the RCSI hospital group because this is a problem that needs to be addressed at both ends because that's where the pressure is. Look we've all heard the stories in relation to families um, who have got great obviously healthcare when they've you know been able to access the system and the service but we also know the huge issues that there have been when people have there have been delays in relation to them being able to um, get into the hospital and then at times to be able to access a bed and all that goes with it. You know,
1: mm-hmm. All right. Uh, you've uh, more data relating to the health service locally as well and the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services known as CAMS. Uh, there's been a, a lot of concern uh, about uh, the shortfalls in uh, the CAM service uh, but there's been a trebling of the amount of people who have sought help from CAMHS.
7: Ah, yes, look, the government came into being um, obviously at the end of, I think it was the 27th of, of June 2020. And at that stage in the CHO8 area that includes uh, County Louth, there were 270 uh, children, you know what I mean, because CAMHS deals with 0 to 18, um, that were waiting to access their first... Time appointment. That number is now seven hundred and thirty-seven. And look, from time to time, government has talked about COVID and the particular issues, and we can accept a small amount of that. But the fact is we were dealing with an issue that existed long before COVID and now these numbers are in absolute disaster terms. You know, and people that are waiting less than three months, that number was 108 at the time. It's now up on 345, 39 to 52 months that has gone from 15 to 61, and over one year has gone from 19 to 97. Now, uh, look, we've all had individual horror stories in relation to families under pressure trying to access mental health services. That's not to take away from the huge work that has been done with individuals and with families. But what we're seeing here is we're seeing, once again, a system that is not fit to offer the service that our people require. And on that, this is... Uh, well, here we're a million miles away from the early intervention system. Look, we we all know the the issues that exist in relation to the children disability network teams. We know that people who cannot access certain services and that, and um, we know that we don't have enough SLTs, OT, psychologists. See if we had some of those earlier pieces, there is always a possibility we wouldn't necessarily need to be looking at what are the. Um, what can be the moderate and acute sort of interventions that that, that CAMS generally deals with. See, mm-hmm. that's my fear across all of these services. The early intervention piece is absolutely uh, missing. Obviously, we need capital investment. Waiting
1: over a year doesn't uh, tally well with that principle because, I mean, we're talking about an awful lot of children, 737 uh, children waiting over a, a year 97 and, uh, in uh, County and 500% so. increase you say on 2020. Why is there such a, a delay?
7: Yeah and what I'm going to throw into that as well is we need to have an overall look in relation to uh, CAMS, and I think it's missing one letter it's obviously it's children adolescents, but it also has to from here on in contain the why the youth um, and that's the idea that you would deal with uh, you would deal with kids and young people up until they're 25 because I think best practice around the world says that an awful lot of the mental health issues and whatever that can exist and that can can appear generally happen between 16 and 25 and look- we've all spoken about the fact that adult services, you just fall off the cliff. So this is in the programme for government as far as mm. I, I understand it to be, but it has never actually been implemented. So look, we're back into, obviously, workforce planning. We need to make sure that we can fill the gaps. But we also have to look across the entire system. We know that there are multidisciplinary teams in certain CHO areas. Some of them may have more of the particular requirements that are needed. And then we need to look at what the need is, and how best we can provide it. And that's acceptance, that even if we do everything perfectly from this day on, we will still have gaps. We should do all we can in relation to recruitment. We should do all we can in relation to training, ensuring that we have a throughput. But beyond that, we need to be able to say, here is the service we can provide. Here's the best way we can provide it. And we can offer a consistency across this day. Because what we have at the minute is absolute and abject failure. And look, if we're missing the early intervention piece, that means we will be constantly firefighting and dealing with the worst issues. And I'm not necessarily sure we'll always be able to get the best outcome for families that are under severe, severe pressure.
1: Well, there is no doubt we're failing children. Uh, I mean, uh, there's 737 uh, children uh, who haven't had an assessment. They were waiting for a first-time appointment. For more than a year with mental health issues, uh, we're failing. Each and every one of uh, those children, and there is no doubting that. And I'm sure that there's nobody who would argue with that. That that is completely unacceptable. Uh, when so we
7: have to, we have to. So we have to look at the system, yeah. make an overall assessment, yeah. um, by the best system we can, and then fill the gaps as quickly
1: hmm. as we can. Well, we've looked at the system, haven't we? And there is uh, a report. Multiple reports. Well, there is uh, multiple reports, as you say, but there certainly are the most recent reports uh, from the Director of Mental Health uh, and uh, indeed a roadmap uh, to uh, improving that system. As to whether uh, we'll be here in a year's time talking about people waiting... For more than a year to be seen or, or not uh, is another day's work but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on you, the programme today, that's uh, local Sinn Féin TD, Rory Muraku. now let me bring you some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning, Peter is in Trim uh, and he said uh, people are afraid to go out in the streets of Navin, 10 miles away from where Helen McEntee lives she is also putting a guard station in O'Connell Street which might solve some of the problems in Dublin Peter says she has the power to change the law to go after the young untouchables Uh, and Tommy who was in touch with us earlier on saying 100% of people in County Mead would support Helen McEntee Peter says, mustn't listen to the news too often. Thank you indeed uh, for that, Peter. More criticism of Minister Helen McEntee from Anne, uh, and indeed Tommy, who called in to support her. She says, hi Michael, a message from Tommy, the Helen McEntee supporter. Sorry to disappoint you, but not 100% of people from Meath support Helen McEntee. I, and many other people I know, don't think she is doing a good job. A Justice Minister who thinks it's safe to walk the streets of Dublin is in dreamland. Strong criticism. Thanks for your comment. Thanks for your text uh, for that matter um, and everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Our telephone number is zero four one nine eight three two thousand. Text or WhatsApp 086180-658. 800 Email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, michael Reed on
3: LMFM. on LMFM. Now next
1: Tuesday and Wednesday the Thomas uh, Darcy Summer school takes place in Carlingford. Uh, we're joined by Jerry Mcalinden, who's uh, the chair of the organising committee for the summer school and, indeed, former chair of uh, the Carlingford Heritage Centre. Uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you uh, for coming into us uh, this morning, Jerry. Uh, and I think congratulations. Uh, it's a, a very interesting lineup, a diverse lineup of people uh, who you'll have in Carlingford over the couple of days next week. Uh, maybe you tell us a little bit more about that and uh, i'm not sure if i need to ask why you've chosen the theme of uh, the good friday agreement given that it is 25 years on uh, since the signing of the most uh, important accord on this Mm -hmm. island Mm -hmm. michael i'm very pleased to
8: be here and thank you very much indeed for the opportunity and the invitation um the uh i mean we've uh, we're put this program together very much uh, it's the 12th in a in a, in a series of uh, Thomas Darcy McGee summer schools uh, and we want uh, each year we do try to take issues that are important uh, on this island that we all share here uh, and uh, obviously the Good Friday Agreement in 25 years uh, on from that uh, gives us an opportunity one to celebrate what has been mm. done and to reflect on what might have been done better but more particularly, you know, to move the whole thing uh, into the future and what are the issues, the mega issues that are going to be confronting all of us, irrespective of political traditions or whatever. Mm. Uh, And also then we wanted to get the perspective of those, the the people who were uh, what you might broadly call the Good Friday generation, you know, who were Mm. maybe born just before or not long after uh, and uh, who... Have to anticipate the future, so we're looking forward yeah. mm-hmm. to the next twenty-five years rather than. It's simply,
1: great speaking yeah. to young people, isn't it? about the troubles uh-huh. uh, and how difficult it is for them to grasp it, uh, because that was our, our life, uh, and thankfully it's been relegated to the past.
8: Well, absolutely, and they, uh, you know, bring their uh, their hopes, their aspirations, and ambitions, and thankfully, you know, with the. Uh, piece that, that that the Good Friday uh, agreement has given us over the past uh, 25 years. Do you know, people can see economic opportunities, social openings. You know, uh, cultural uh, avenues. You know, that weren't there before, and uh, or that seem to be restricted to one community or the other. And what we have tried to do is to bring people from. All traditions and no traditions, you know. If you mm. think in terms, of, yeah. uh, in political terms, you know. So uh, really and truly, what we're what we've been trying to do, and you, you know, I'd just uh, speak about the organising uh, group. We've got Carniford Lock Heritage Trust, uh, the Darcy McGee Foundation, um, and uh, Arts of Wonder, which is mixes a, a cross border body, and mm. Arts of Wonder is uh, an organisation based in Restrever. and so we've been working together on this uh, to. Uh, you know, uh, to to not just bring together the, the, a range of speakers, but to put the themes together on that. And you know, I would pay homage as well, you know, to uh, Thomas Darcy McGee, and just say a mm. quick word about him, because please um, do,
1: because yeah. uh, we're going to uh, have the opportunity to speak to some of uh, the speakers who'll be at the summer school. Uh, I think every day on the program uh, uh, this absolutely. week, a- and people might be saying, "Who was Thomas Darcy McGee? Uh, was he Irish or was he Canadian?" Yes, well, he.
8: He was born in Carlingford and Irish, and uh, he was a a young Irelander in the the mid-19th century, went across to, uh, uh, well, exiled to America, you know, uh, 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 but back and forward uh, uh, over the period would have shifted his views somewhat, you know, from the more physical force tradition to looking at, you know... uh, uh, how to build a modern democracy, and that was particularly in Canada, where he was able to work alongside uh, people from very, very different mm. uh, backgrounds. The o- Orange Order, for example, uh, unionism, uh, uh, and, uh, and 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 be- begin to see, you know, uh, what mm. it would take to build a society around consensus and shared problem solving, and we have taken that notion. Mm. And because he was born in Carlingford, you mm. know, and that A we, John
1: Hume type of figure would you, uh, absolutely mm, in many yeah. ways,
8: you know, mm. you could see him mm. uh, as that 19th century figure. Mm. Um, who wasn't very popular with uh, uh, part of the whole sort of uh, Fenian movement mm. uh, at that time? Indeed, uh, that's how uh, yeah. he, he, he was a member life. of
1: Parliament in Canada. He was, he? yes, yes
8: yeah. and is seen as a, a father of the uh, Canadian uh, Confederation. Mm. But what that has done for us in Carlingford is to give us that opportunity, you know, to take issues that aren't easy issues, mm. you know, that have, you know, caused us. And, uh, friction and dissent and uh, mm. you know and disagreement uh, and more than disagreement uh, conflict over over mm. uh, decades um you know issues like uh, uh the well the whole legacy we've dealt with that on yep. on the troubles brexit you know mm. which came like a fly on the soup, you know, for uh, for so much of the work of the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. Um, we've dealt with the whole theme of, uh, you know, modern Ireland, diversity and inclusion, and bringing, you know, how, how we deal with that mm. uh, as a society. Last year, we looked at... Um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and asked, you know, uh, what that had to do with European values, because mm. we're part of Europe, and and how we uh, how mm. we address that, yeah. you know. So mm. we tried to mm. deal with issues in a way, and this is what we want to try to do in Carlingford is to create a space. We're on the border, mm. you know.
1: Uh, uh, and we want to create oh, yeah, You really are on the border, of course, and everybody will know that every day you look at, uh, across the border uh, at your neighbours in a different jurisdiction. Absolutely.
8: Mm. And that's why we have partners from uh, the north as well, Do you mm. know, uh, and uh, uh, and we will have people from both traditions in the north, both cultural traditions, political traditions, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and we want to create a space that is safe, that is welcoming, that is inclusive and that respects, you know, the points of view, you know, and that come from so many of those different uh, Mm. Parts of our country. Okay,
1: and you do, maybe you want to just uh, mention some of uh, the speakers if uh, people are interested in attending next week, uh, because it's a modest entry fee for the two days as well. I a- think. Yeah. Absolutely, mm. yes, yeah. it's uh, uh, sixty euro uh, mm-hmm.
8: for the full program, and people can come along for we we'll have three main sessions. Mm-hmm. One session will be around the builders, so we have people uh, like uh, the uh, Brona Hines, who was one of the uh, members of the women's coalition uh, Danny Kennedy who would have been from a unionist perspective we'll have uh, uh, Linda Irvine who's one of the cultural activists uh, on uh, on the loyalist unionist uh, side um, uh, uh, people from the Schomburg Society uh, in Kilkeel who also you know have a cultural mm. their Ulster Scots uh, cultural tradition which is be an integral part you know uh, of the working out of uh, of of uh, what her issues are so uh, that first session is very much focused on uh, where we have come from uh, and what are the continuing issues around identity and culture and things like that mm. the second one in the afternoon of uh, tuesday the 15th uh, we have uh, we, we decided that we wanted to open the agenda out to the big issues the mega issues yeah. uh, that will affect all of us irrespective of how we how we view the world uh, climate change uh, um, uh, artificial intelligence and what mm. that's going to do, whatever and, that is, <laughs> and, and whatever that is, uh, yeah. and economic mm. disruption. Yeah. So yeah. we have a, a, you know, people from, uh, from, uh, from there, um, and then on uh, the uh, Wednesday morning uh, on the sixteenth, uh, we have Emma D'Souza, who's been a young woman who has you know really challenged the establishment around you know the whole notion of what it is to be Irish in Northern Ireland the north of Ireland the six counties whatever people want to call it but what that meant for her and her husband and on the other side we've got a young loyalist speaker Joel Keyes who has you know uh, represented his community, what he would call the Pro- Protestant uh, Unionist Loyalist community, mm. um, at uh, in 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 the Houses of Parliament, where they, he was the spokesperson for uh, the Loyalist Communities Group. You know when they spoke there mm. on Brexit uh, on Brexit and the Protocol a couple of years ago. You know, so we'll have some really yeah. interesting perspectives. Mm. But we also wanted to take in the um, uh, groups that aren't so. They're, they're to a certain extent lost when you talk about the two big traditions on the island of Ireland. The Travellers would be a case in point. And mm. we have a wonderful speaker there, Owen De Vredun. Um, and Owen, uh, 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 he's a Travellers Cultural uh, Rights uh, um, uh, Officer in, in National Museums. Um, and uh, he's also a representative of the LGBTQ community. Uh, uh, community Mm -hmm. you know and so what we want to do is to take that sort of breadth of real real diversity and look at uh, yeah Mm -hmm. and and look Mm -hmm. at how how we build on that and uh, and as I say creating that safe and welcoming and inclusive space Mm -hmm. you know Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd like also just to say you know we couldn't do this without Louth County Council Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and they've been uh, you know our supporters uh, you know throughout Uh, and we also have had great support from Green Oar Port, uh, from Carlingford Oyster Company. Those uh, are people that I'd particularly like to mention. Very good, very good.
1: And you've a a, a great agenda over the next couple of, over the couple of days next week. That's Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. I suppose the obvious question is, um, whilst the Good Friday Agreement delivered peace to this island, is the Good Friday Agreement uh, viable at as it stands, given the political impasse, the vacuum that there is in Northern Ireland, and with that, the risk that comes to the peace process, and does the idea of power sharing need to be reconstructed so that the people of Northern Ireland are not without this nonsense, uh, this uh, holding? Uh, the six counties to ransom uh, because of one issue or another, regardless of who decides to walk out of Stormont. It's
8: a massive question, uh, Michael, uh, and I think it's the one at the point uh, of uh, uh, any uh, discussion. Do you know, uh, the Good Friday Agreement brought us uh, peace and uh, uh, a space, you know, for uh, policy making that might set us on a course towards, you know. A, uh, you know, consensus mm. uh, uh, for sure. I mean, we look back on the last twenty-five years, and I'm pretty certain that we're going to hear, you know, from some of the yeah. speakers mm. there, you know, what opportunities have been missed uh, mm. and how uh, the uh, the outworking of that could have served us all better. Uh, I think that is work in progress. I don't think, uh, you know, the Uh, you you know, speaking from the sidelines, you know, that Mm. we uh, can say uh, much other than as citizens and people who have got a vested interest Mm. in seeing uh, this thing work. Well, we don't want
1: to return to those dark old days. We don't want our children to really have a a grasp of what it was like. Uh, But it is a young peace process. It's a fragile peace process. And you could be back there very quickly. We all know that, uh, I suppose. But but Uh, at the
8: same time, you know, uh, I mean, I'm from the north, as you can pick up from my accent, and uh, you know I, I lived and worked there through, throughout most of the troubles. You know, so I am familiar uh, with it, and, and I would speak with people in uh, from different traditions, you know, uh, and continue to do that. And um, people who uh, have known uh, mm. the, the full weight of the troubles and perhaps have been involved in, mm. in, uh, in through so all I mean, of that, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, what I can. Say is that there is an overwhelming, overwhelming, uh, 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 volunteer or desire mm. on the part of people, mm. you know, and to keep this process going, imperfect as that might be, you know, mm. uh, challenging and, you know, inconsistent and, you know, sometimes incoherent. And at the moment, you know, we can only hope. You know that the various parties are going to get mm. together, and that the assembly will be back uh, in operation, yeah. and that things like hospital beds and education mm. for youngsters yeah. and sco- you know yeah. uh, uh, the cost of the heating, uh, the cost of heating, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Of yeah.
1: the day to day issues, yeah. indeed, uh, yeah. and get back to normal life, absolutely, yeah, indeed. Um, All right, that's, yeah, that's well, very good. It. Um, uh, it, it is uh, is. Uh, very interesting uh, on paper I'm sure it'll be all the more interesting for those who attend and uh, great to speak to you and thanks for coming into us this morning well, Jerry. thank you very Why much you? Michael
8: and I just uh, say as well that people can get tickets on Eventbrite or they can turn up on the day and mm. they'd be more than welcome
1: very good uh, alright well look thank you as I say that's uh, Jerry Mcalinden, who is uh, the chair of uh, the organising committee for the Thomas Darcy McGee Summer School 2023 uh, and also former chair of uh, the Carlingford Heritage Centre
3: Michael Read on
1: LMFM. Just some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today. Thanks uh, to Margaret, uh, as always, uh, texting us uh, to say Trump in court again. That'll suit him, as he loves publicity of any kind. All narcissists do. What a state uh, the US is in. How can so many believe his lies? Have they not got the brains to realise he only cares about himself? How can a country allow someone run for the presidency if they end up being a convicted criminal? He doesn't want immigrants in the US, yet he conveniently forgets that he's from immigrant extraction. His dad, German, his mother, Scottish, so he's not a true American. The only true Americans are the Indians. Each and every tribe were there before their land was invaded by others. And look what was done to them. They were slaughtered by the greedy, ruthless invaders in their own country. So, Mr. Trump, you are the product of immigration to the United States, like millions of others there and not the true American that you pertain to be. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, we'll send that to Donald. We? <laughs> I wish we could. Uh, I, I think uh, it would be interesting to hear his response to that. Well put, Margaret, and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to Texas. Uh, John Conlon, uh, in Ballymachany texting us, WhatsApping us uh, as well today, saying one of uh, the main problems with the HSE is too many chiefs, not enough Indians. It's like most of the services in Ireland, the staff that's there are at breaking point. Thank you, John, for that. It's certainly a, a busy sector if ever there was. And I think if anybody goes into uh, hospital, uh, they'll see very quickly the very, very hard, stressful work that many of the staff are doing very calmly uh, because they are so professional and good at their jobs and thank God for them. Uh, Another text to us about Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice and indeed uh, that Sunday independent poll uh, that said 51% of people are not happy with how she is performing as uh, the Minister for Justice uh, and indeed uh, very you are happy uh, for that matter. Uh, somebody saying uh, was that something to do with the necklace or uh, because of her attitude when she was walking around uh, the inner city um, that was uh, something that was reported on in uh, the Sunny Independent yesterday uh, that led to some of the criticisms that are being made of Minister McEntee. Uh, the paper said uh, that there were two photos um, that were going around a WhatsApp group. This is a group of government advisers and senior figures in last month. Two different photographs going around on this WhatsApp group. The first of Minister McEntee speaking at a, a press conference in Store Street Garda Station uh, where she's wearing a, a necklace and the second then taken outside of the Garda station uh, when she was out and about walking uh, on the streets with the Garda Commissioner and Pascal Donoghue, but the necklace can't be seen. Uh, the implication, the Sunday Independent said, was that McEntee hid her jewellery while walking through the North inner city. To her critics, this was even more galling than when she had declared Dublin to be a safe city. Uh, that she didn't feel her necklace was safe, I, I take it, is uh, the implication if she went uh, for a walk in the inner city uh, and the necklace was visible, what was she worried about? Was she so worried that somebody uh, would take the necklace from her? That seems to be what uh, the government uh, and Finnegale uh, people in this group are, were worried about. Um, and the paper reported yesterday that uh, Minister McIntyre finds herself under significant scrutiny this summer and her critics in Fine Gael and wider government circles have grown since she returned from maternity leave in June. It's been compounded by events or as one supporter puts it, a perfect storm of issues. Another ally says she's been unfortunate insofar as stuff has happened since she came back. It certainly has uh, and that's not quite how it was phrased in the paper either, but that's uh, what they're saying in the Sunday Independent about Helen McEntee. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, Megan McGuire researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
0: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie